Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the McGuire Woods Women in Private Equity and Finance podcast. My name is Phyllis Young, and I am a debt finance partner of the Dallas and Houston offices of McGuire Woods. Today, we are going to focus on the women in finance aspect of our podcast and learn about some of our guests' insight into the industry, as well as the current state of affairs. I'm joined today by Yasmin Hubiger, who is Senior Vice President, Middle Market Banking at Capital One. Yasmin, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Phyllis. It's great to be here. Why don't we kick things off, Yasmin, by you telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I'm based in Houston, Texas, actually a native Houstonian. I've been at Capital One for 14 years. All of my career has really been spent in the, the banking sector. Started at JP Morgan for just under two years and then moved to Capital One in 2006 and started in a kind of a credit and underwriting role. Did that for roughly four to five years and got some good experience during that time. And then I've been really on the client development relationship management role for about the last 10 years. And so currently I am responsible for developing new client relationships in the Houston market. We kind of define middle market as mostly privately held businesses, some publics with, you know, revenues I'd say from 25 million to, you know, not really a a cap, but up to about 500 million on average is kind of where we, the space that we play. Up until late last year, I was mostly focused on the Houston market. And then in January, I actually took on some additional responsibilities to manage our Central Texas operations, which is San Antonio and Austin. And so that's a new responsibility that I've just taken on. And so looking forward to getting to know that market a little bit better. It sounds like you've got quite a lot of responsibility there and a lot of ground to cover that you're responsible for. You've been in the industry now, you said 14 years. What was the culture like for you back, say, 10 years, 14 years ago? What was it like for women back then? And do you feel like it's improved? You know, I think in some ways it's improved, but in many ways it's still the same. There's certainly more focus today around the promotion and advancement of women. I certainly see more women leaders industry-wide than I did 10 years ago. And I think there's been a huge investment overall in diversity inclusion efforts uh, across the board for many companies. That being said, there's still a really large gap, I think, that needs to be closed culturally for women. Just a quick story on my part. This might have been seven or eight years ago. I had someone I worked pretty closely with that was going to go take on a different role. And he really wanted me to come with him. At the time, there wasn't a kind of a client-facing, you know, client development role available for me to follow him. And so, you know, his sell to me was, you're newly married. You're going to, you know, I know you want to probably start a family. It's going to be tough if you want to continue in a client development role and relationship management. There's going to be dinners and weekends and things outside that are going to take you away from your family. Do you really want to do that? And it really kind of gave me pause to 
you know, hearing him sell that to me. And so I think it's just interesting. I don't think there's any, you know, malice intent on his part in saying that, but I think it's just interesting to note that there's still a lot of that bias that exists where, you know, even today we think if you are a woman and you're trying to progress in your career and you're in a position that requires you to be out with clients and be away from family, that that is something that you just don't want to do. So I just think it's kind of interesting how, you know, that bias still exists today. I know some things that Capital One has done to create, you know, a little bit better culture for women is, you know, developing certain groups like we have something that I'm a part of at Capital One called the Emerging Women's Leaders Group. This group gives us access to our senior leadership team in the form of networking events, in addition to various trainings and executive education. So I think there's different programmatic advances that are happening that are, you know, trying to advance women. I just think there's still a gap. I'm hopeful in 10 years, we won't be saying this, but certainly there's been some progress. I just think we have some work to do. I agree. I think, I think it's really interesting because what seems to me to be different too is that I do think there are a lot of organizations like Capital One are promoting women and having programs kind of like you described and for the networking, the executive education, all those aspects to help you be successful, be a leader. But what's interesting is to me is that I feel like, you know, when you talk about that gap, when I think about some of my friends and colleagues, women who are in leadership roles now in their organizations, they don't have a lot of, I'm trying to think of the exact way to phrase it, but they're not a lot of models, I guess you could say for them to follow because a lot of them, this is, they're the first woman in this particular type of role, or there's nothing to really look back on and say, okay, here's someone else I can really rely on their experience and use their experience as a model for me. So in a lot of ways, uh, you know, particularly like for senior women and the executive education, you reach a certain level and it's different from when you were you know, more junior or kind of in the middle of your career path. And so there, I feel like there needs to be right now for women more models that we can use for things like executive education and kind of peer-to-peer types of resources. In any event, that's just kind of what my thought on that is all about. What do you think are some of your character traits that have benefited you and your success? I think first and foremost, I'm extremely competitive. I was a collegiate athlete and played sports my entire life. And so I think that's kind of bled over into my business life. I also, you know, what's interesting too is although I'm competitive, I have that fiery spirit. I tend to be pretty calm and not get too riled up in times of stress. And I think that helps me and my team stay focused on the task at hand and just be a calming presence. And then something that someone's, you know, a lot of people have actually mentioned to me, it's not something I would have ever thought of, is that kind of told I'm fairly relatable and I have a great ability to connect with people and develop rapport. And that's both on the, you know, on the client side and with colleagues. And I think that helps me build really strong relationships. And, you know, this is, Banking essentially is a relationship business. And so I think that's really, you know, helped fuel my success. Yeah. All those characteristics that you mentioned, I think, seem to me when I'm observing you know, people running deals, especially women running deals, I think like you're calm, you don't get riled up, relatable, that whole building rapport and relationships 
that really seems to be key and something that, you know, I don't think you learn that like when you're going through school and things like that, the importance of just emotional intelligence and relationship aspects. 100%. I think emotional intelligence out of many character traits is probably the most underrated in the business world because it can, you know, being able to read a room and just understand how you should respond and when you should respond and how you should address certain situations. I think that that kind of gets lost in the shuffle and you think about solely about performance. I think that is, especially for leaders, the emotional intelligence, you know, trait is extremely important. Yeah. And then you mentioned that you're competitive. I'm just curious, which sports did you play? So I played volleyball and basketball all growing up and volleyball in college. Oh, wow. So you're, you're serious. <laughs> I used to be serious, not quite as serious anymore, but I, 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 you certainly don't lose the competitive edge, I think. And I think, you know, playing a team sport at a high level has helped me today and, you know, working collaboratively with teams, working with uncross-functional teams and now leading teams. Personally, I'm not a athletic person when it comes to playing sports and that sort of thing, but I think one of my innate characteristics has always been, I remember just from a very young age being very competitive, but I was more competitive with myself and always trying to outbest myself, really. And I feel like I, that's something that I've always kind of pulled on to get me through. Competition, uh, you know, it comes in many forms. It's not necessarily you have to play a sport. I would also say that I, so I'm my own worst critic, essentially. So I, I push myself harder than anybody. I totally relate to that, and I tend to jump into, I feel like I have this characteristic about myself where I tend to jump into the most challenging situation just to kind of see how I will react within the situation and sort of get myself out of it. That's kind of one of the ways that I, I guess, compete with myself is just kind of seeing how can I get into this really difficult situation and make it better and everyone's happy and we walk away and it's a good thing. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, yes, and what's some of your advice to banks, investment banks, financial institutions that are seeking to increase the number of women at their firms? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Phyllis. I, I'd kind of be interested to hear your take too on the on the law firm side, but I think there's, I mean, I know there's proven data around why having a more diverse workforce is beneficial to a company's performance. I think there's some statistics out there that say, you know, companies with the highest level of diversity, either gender, ethnic, or racial, are anywhere from 15 to 35% more likely to have financial returns above the industry average. So it's proven to be in our firm's and companies' best interest to do so. I think other firms are farther ahead than finance in general. Some things that could be done to do, I think, to attract, it's not only attract, I think retainage is a bigger issue that we're dealing with. Women is investing in better benefits such as flexible work arrangements, you know, work from home when you need to. Something that I really valued having small children at Capital One is longer maternity leave. For both my kids, I got 18 weeks maternity leave. And I can't tell you how nice it was to be able to have that time and not worry about having to go back to work right away and just be able to spend that time with a new baby as a, as a new mom. I know that, you know, I hear some 
friends and colleagues that, you know, dealt with, you know, starting families a number of years ago were talking about six weeks and they were back at the office and working the same number of hours. And I just, I can't even imagine having to do that. I think I was still in a, a fog 12 weeks in. So I think that it's also important to, you know, try to build a culture where women aren't afraid to utilize those benefits for fear it may be viewed they aren't working as hard. I think we all know today with technology and the advances we've made, you know, while we might leave a little early to go home and, you know, take care of some things at the house, I mean, a number of us are logging back in later at night. So I think, you know, when you get your work done isn't as important as it used to be, like an eight to five type schedule. I mean, I think we're, we're all working a number of hours and it could be spotty throughout the day, but I think that's you know, that's a trade-off we have to have some flexibility to be home when we want. You know, that also means fostering an environment and culture where work-life balance is a reality, basically, and not, and not something we just talk about. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think all those things that you mentioned are things that I think it's very similar in law firms. I'm really curious, you know, the work from home, I think, kind of right now, we're showing that you can work from home and be just as productive with your job some cases more productive. So I kind of hope some of those types of aspects, you know, people's mindsets anyway about that will start to change and that will help add to increasing the number of women at financial institutions, banks, as well as law firms. I think what you said is key, and I think it's very similar for law firms, that the key is there are a lot of very smart women graduating at the top of their classes who are able to come into institutions, the key is retaining those women at your firm and those aspects about culture, the benefits. I think using those benefits, and I think part of that as well as our male colleagues using their paternity leave, especially, I think a lot more organizations now have things like paternity leave. And so when men use those benefits, fully use those benefits, you know, say if it's whether it's four weeks or whatever the full amount of it is, use that. Don't just do a week in, you know, or where it looks like maybe you're out on vacation or take a day here and a day here, especially in men who are in more senior positions. I think the men will get more comfortable with that. And then as a result, you know, everyone's kind of view of the totality of the circumstances will start to change. There's still all those things. I think it's just kind of little by little, it helps and it helps change people's attitudes and mindsets about things. Your first story about the coworker who was saying, oh, if you're going to be doing business development, you're going to have to go into dinners and talking to people. And you're like, I can do that. I've been doing that my whole life. It's just kind of, you got to change that mindset that people have. And women, we're great at juggling things. And just because you leave early, because you have to take care of some home responsibilities, like you said, you just go home and you log in and you're working until late into the night. So, you know, I hope that overall that, you know, we can start to change a lot of that mindset. And you're right. It's not just women, it's men too. And back on the paternity leave point you made, I think a lot of companies are giving more paternity leave for men. I know my husband, I think, got six weeks. And when he told me that, I got excited. I said, oh, great. You know, you will be able to really settle in as a family. And he's like, I can't take all that. I said, why? He's like, nobody takes all of it. Like, I, maybe I'll be off for two weeks. And so, I mean, for him to say that, right, obviously, it's almost, he must have felt 
that, you know, culturally it was not acceptable for him to take all of that time off. And certainly women, you know, feel that as well. But I think it's, it's across the board. I think we have to change the mindset to really make some progress on those aspects. Absolutely. So what's the goal that you have set for yourself in the coming year? Well, it's interesting. If you had asked me this in late February or early March, probably would have told you something very different than what I would tell you today. So I'd tell you at the beginning of the year, you know, my goal was I'd taken on some new responsibility. I really wanted to get to know my new team and, you know, build a, a trust and relationship with the team in Central Texas and also execute on a strategy to help grow our presence there. I think while that's still certainly you know, part of my plan. I think it's shifted a bit given the current challenges. I think my focus is just trying to be very customer-centric, staying in touch with clients. I mean, as you're aware, we're all dealing globally with, you know, a health crisis. My goal now, I think, for the rest of 2020 is just to be laser-focused on clients and their needs. And then on a personal and professional level, really just try to remember to worry about things I can control. I think Mm -hmm. early on, I was, I think the stress levels were high working at home, you know, kids are home, a lot of uncertainty. And at a certain point, you can control only certain things. And it's important to remember those. And so I especially had to remind myself of that occasionally. So I think that's kind of how my goals have shifted as the year goes on. And as this is evolving, I'm sure, you know, in three months, it might change, but it's a very fluid time that that's kind of what I'm focused on for now. What are some things that you're doing to stay in touch with your clients? Have you found any sort of creative ways to do that? Or is it just kind of the old-fashioned pick up the phone and talk to someone? I think it's still phone, Zoom meetings. You know, I've done more video calls in the last uh, three months than I ever have. I think pre-COVID, my tendency was to, you know, either you just hop on a conference call or you would meet with a client or someone in person. And so since the in-person is out, I think video is, I've actually really come to embrace video because I like to read body language too when I talk to people. So at least you can see their face and gauge reactions and things like that. So I think it's still a lot of phone calls and emails, but you know, video has certainly taken over a large portion of that as well. Yeah, and do your clients, I'm curious, like do your clients feel like they're comfortable with the Zoom and video conferencing or... Kind of, how do you feel like people or clients are reacting to that? You know, some are better than others. I think our clients have had to embrace it as well. I think it just depends on the business that they're in. Some are, you know, we've sent invites and they'll send me a text before the meeting saying, I can't, you know, I'm having challenges. How do I log into this? And then, you know, there's some that are, that are pros. So I think it's a mixed bag, just depending on the industry and how they normally run their business. And some have embraced it because they've also had to with their associates and clients as well. I'm kind of experiencing a similar, even myself, like I have plenty of times when I've tried to call in and the audio is not working or for some reason my camera is upside down and I look upside down or something. It can be a challenge, but I definitely think that seems to be the wave of the future. And I'm thinking that probably even after all of this is over, a lot of that will continue as far as the Zoom meetings and things like that. And hopefully, you know, possibly because a number of people are continuing to work from home and you kind of have that mix and we're just going to have to adapt and have sort of a, a mix of ways that we're interacting with people. Absolutely. I definitely think it's going to become part of our new normal as we come out of this. Yeah. 
So shifting a little bit, what are some strategies that you think can help women advance in their organizations? So the biggest one for me is just asking for what you want. I think women are notoriously bad at doing this, and men tend to excel and have no issues making them say what they want. Hopefully, you have a strong enough relationship with your manager where this is an easy, natural conversation. But worst case, I think you should use your performance review time to assess where you are and where you want to be. If you and your manager aren't aligned on where you're headed, then it may not be the right role and the right company for you. But at least by asking, you have clarity on where things stand. That's something that I've had to get better at over time because I was, you know, I've historically not been that great at that as well. One other thing I think can be really powerful, a little harder to do sometimes, is if you can find a sponsor. A sponsor, I would say, could be somebody that is in a very senior level role, could be a man or a woman that knows you personally and knows the quality of your work. That person would essentially speak up on your behalf when that promotion is on the table or that stretch roll is open that you might want. Obviously, you're not in the room to speak up for yourself. So it's just, it's nice to have those relationships with somebody very senior that could speak on your behalf. The challenge is, you know, sponsor relationships tend to evolve naturally because of personal or professional connection or just relationship that's been developed over the years. So then that kind of goes back to why networking is so important. That's internal and external networking, but especially internal. If you're trying to advance within your organization, internal networking, getting to know people on your team, outside your team, senior leaders so that they know you is really important so that you can develop those relationships and that they think, oh, hey, I should think of Yasmin for this new role. So I think those are the really key takeaways for me is ask for what you want, and, you know, network and try to find a sponsorship relationship that can help benefit you down the road. Definitely. I agree with both of those strategies. And I do think it's sometimes harder for, I think a lot of times women, you know, we think we're doing a good job and it's clear we're doing a good job. And so we're waiting for as a result of that to be rewarded for our good job as opposed to being more proactive about going out and saying, you know, telling people, I've been doing a good job. This is what I want. You know, sometimes we have to, for some of us, it's a little outside of our comfort zones. And so we can't expect people to read our minds and we really have to go out there and be proactive. You mentioned, you know, sponsors are, the relationships are very organic and, you know, it's just sometimes a matter of, do you think it's, a good strategy for women to kind of go tap someone to be a sponsor uh, or find, identify someone that could be a sponsor for them in an organization, or is it kind of better just to let those naturally, organically occur? I mean, I think certainly it's tricky. While I think it's important for the relationship to naturally and organically develop, So either connect with somebody or you don't, and somebody thinks that you're doing a good job, that might take time for them to see your work product, for them to understand how you work and what type of value you add to the organization. I think once the relationship is developed, not that I've said, hey, Phyllis, will you be my sponsor? But Mm -hmm. once I know that we have a good relationship, a good rapport, you've seen my work product, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you know, Phyllis, there's this opportunity I'm really interested in, and I'm not sure if you have 
any insight into, you know, what avenue the organization is going to go. But if you're open to it, would you be willing to speak on my behalf? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying something like that. I just think it's tricky to go tap somebody and say, will you be my sponsor? I think they do happen organically and they have to, you know, there has to be a connection, I think, personal and professional for it to work. Right. Overall, I guess it's just kind of really being about being proactive, taking that control and really just, you know, again, I think it's just a lot just comes back to relationships, right? 100% always comes back to relationships. Why, Yasmin, do you actively support diversity in the boardroom and at the executive rank? Well, I think I touched on this a little bit already, but obviously there's data out there that supports why, you know, women in leadership roles or boardroom type roles, you know, have higher performing organizations. You know, I think also, though, you have to look at it from the standpoint of, you know, when women ascend to these leadership roles, they become role models to girls and other women. I think we need more of that. More women leaders also influence, you know, high-level decision-making that will pave the way towards more gender equality in finance. And then also, you know, something we haven't talked about much is the gender pay gap. I think that still exists. So I think we need more of a seat at the table to, you know, to help solve some of these issues and the gaps that we've discussed in some of the prior questions. And, you know, finally, I'll just say I have a daughter and it's important to me for there to be really strong role models for her so that when she's at a point where she's ready to enter the workforce, she's not, you know, dealing with some of these same issues and she's got good, strong role models and senior roles at the board level to look to. Yeah, absolutely. And she'll certainly have a role model in you. (laughs) Well, I hope so. I'm not sure she'll see it that way, but I hope she does. Was there anyone who inspired you to go into finance or is there an example of someone who is currently or who has inspired you in finance? Yeah, I think there's a couple people that come to mind as far as who inspire me and still inspire me today. One I'll talk about is actually my manager now, Jim Nicholas. I'm not saying this for brownie points, so if Jim listens, uh, this is definitely not for, for bonus points on performance review time, but... So Jim is the probably the one of the kindest, most genuine human beings that I've ever met. And his best trait as a leader is that he unequivocally working for him, I have zero doubt that he has my own best interests, you know, is is top priority for him. So when he is talking about me at come performance review time, when in talking with other senior leaders, I know that he has my best interest. And he's got my back. And I think it's a really unique trait. I think a lot of leaders, you know, say all the right things, but do they really walk the walk? If I could take one thing out of his playbook, it would be that exact thing. It's to try to foster an environment where all of my team and my associates that work for me feel valued, feel like I've got their back. And like, there are no ulterior motives. And that is 100% Jim. And that's, I think it's really, really unique. And so he's just a really genuine person. And to me, that's inspiring because it makes it really easy to go to work. And, you know, I just go to work and I do my job and I know he's there to support me. So I think that's huge. So that's one. And then another one I'll point out, we talked about sponsors a little bit. And I'm a big proponent of mentorship relationships also think they can be tricky because I know a lot of 
organizations try to assign mentors, and sometimes that works, and other times it doesn't, just because, again, there has to be a personal connection, I think, for that to really work effectively. Thankfully, when I took on a role on the relationship side, I was given a mentor, and it worked out, I mean, beyond well. Her name is Catherine, and she and I are still friends, and I still consider her a mentor today. I just think it's been really nice to have a you know, more senior person that you can talk about work issues, about balancing work and home life issues, about how to handle certain situations. And so I've had that for a number of years. And while I've certainly grown in my career over those years, and we still talk today, maybe not in the same context that we did 10 years ago, but I think, you know, having her to help me along the way has been instrumental in my growth. Yeah, I definitely, I've had some of those female mentors, especially in more senior positions than as a, you know, a senior woman myself now, I feel like you always value those relationships and that being able to relate, especially. And it's funny too, because, you know, a lot of times you see people like that maybe are your role models or mentors and you think, oh, you know, they're perfect. They're reacting to these situations in the most perfect way you could. And then when you're talking to them and you relate to them and you say, oh, you know, they have these little flaws too that make them human. I think it even kind of adds more so to that relationship and what I get out of it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like I said, they can mentor relationships. I think when forced, sometimes they aren't as effective if there's not that real connection. But you know, if you find a good one, I mean, they can do wonders for you know professional development. And I mm-hmm. think that's certainly the case for me. I hope I try to do the same. And I, you know, I hope to be able to, to pay it forward in a similar manner to some younger up and coming women as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. It's funny because at a certain point in my career, probably even as a senior associate before I even made partner, what I started observing was that a lot of younger women, you know, law students and younger associates were looking to me as a role model and a mentor and coming to me for advice. And I always thought that was, it was a very, you know, unique position to be in and a position of trust. But, you know, I enjoy being a mentor and helping people because I want to see people succeed and be successful and be happy in their careers. You you talked about your manager who, you know, makes people feel valued, makes the team members feel valued. I think that that a leader who can make their team members feel valued, notwithstanding And you know that they're doing a lot of things. They're managing the business. They're working with clients. They're dealing personal things. They've got all these other things going on in their lives. Yet when they're dealing with you sort of individually, they're still sort of calm and making you feel valued. I just think that's probably one of the greatest traits you can have as a leader. Absolutely. It's like I said, it's very unique and I think probably certainly his best trait, and I hope to be able to emulate that to some extent going forward. Well, we kind of touched on this earlier, but we have to talk about it given the times that we are living in. What's been your immediate reaction to the pandemic? Certainly unprecedented in our lifetime. I think we'd all agree that. What's interesting, and sometimes I have to remind myself of this, is that 
it's affecting the entire world. It's a health crisis. And then, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of potential economic fallout from it. And so I don't think, certainly not in my lifetime, and sounds like potentially not in 100 years or so, that there's been a pandemic like this that has, it's sparing no one, right? So the entire world is dealing with it. Yeah, it's been definitely been challenging. And, you know, looking back even just two months ago, it feels like that was years ago or somehow it just feels like such a compressed amount of time. We've really experienced a lot. And so um, the pace at which changes are happening is certainly something I've never had to deal with. Also, none of us have really had to deal with. How do you see COVID-19 challenging your business and the businesses you serve? I hate to beat a dead horse, but I think I'm just going to go back to uncertainty. I think obviously it depends on what industry you're in. Some industries are significantly impacted, hospitality and, you know, among others. But then you've got others that may not be impacted directly, but there could be an indirect impact down the road just based on demand issues and changing behaviors of consumers. I would like to try to make something positive or put the best, you know, been on situations that I'm dealing with. And so I always try to think when I'm under challenging times, what can I learn from this? How can I be better? And also, you know, what are things going to look like, you know, after this? And so how can I start preparing for that and thinking about that? And so, you know, part of what we're experiencing now is the limitations on personal interaction and I was curious, how do you think deal processes will advance with these limitations on personal interaction? Are things like virtual due diligence an option? Like, how can we deal with the current situation and, you know, maybe some of the challenges of deal making today? How do we deal with that now? And, you know, how do you think we can use that to advance things in the future? I think it will be really interesting to see how this plays out because I was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine maybe last week and he is in a similar role and, you know, client management. And he was saying that he has had more meetings virtually and had more luck with people taking his requests for meetings. His success rate is a lot higher and he didn't know if it was because it's a lot easier to accept a 30-minute phone call or a video call or, you know, people just prefer, uh, you can stick to a timeline, right? So if you set a 30-minute meeting, you can usually stick to it on the phone versus somebody, you know, coming to your office or doing due diligence in the office. So I think, you know, there certainly could be some changes. I think how it unfolds is to be determined, but I think there could be some definite changes in the way we work as a whole. And that's not just finance. I think that's the entire world. I think we've all proven if with technology, we can work at home and we can be very productive. Yes, definitely. So even one of the things, obviously being even an attorney role, and I'm certain in your role, you're having to meet a lot of people and get those interactions and you know, approaching people and businesses that even you don't know, but you're developing the relationship. So I think that will be really interesting. Like, how do you kind of go on those kind of first meetings, first 
phone calls or Zoom meetings, I guess, now even with new relationships and how all that plays out. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. So I'm curious to see if, you know, kind of initial meetings virtually, if that will work and if that will take on. Um, that's something I haven't done yet. I think, if anything, for me, with everything that's been going on and just reaching out to clients, it almost feels a little more personal, right? Because we're all dealing with the same thing. But then I'm probably texting them a lot more than normal. And then obviously, we're rather than me calling them at their office, I'm calling cell phones. And sometimes I'm getting texts late at night. So I think that the touch points are probably greater right now and more personal, whereas some I may not have texted before. Now I'm texting and calling on cell phones and we're talking on weekends occasionally. So so I think it's become, from a client standpoint, it's become a little more personal too. But I think the communication definitely morphed into, you know, kind of email, text, Zoom. Yeah. I agree. I think it's become more personal and you know less formal in a lot of ways, too. I think people are kind of, like I said, we're all sort of in the same boat. And so we're relating to each other now on that personal level and identifying what things that we're dealing with, all of us are dealing with on a day-to-day basis now. Definitely. Well, finally, Yasmin, our signature question that we ask on our McGuire Woods podcast is, what advice would you give your younger 22-year-old self? So when you just graduated from college and you're just getting ready to start your career, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, what would you tell yourself? For me, I think it would be, don't be afraid to take more risks. You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this before, but I kind of you know, stumbled into banking on accident. And then I've kind of progressed, you know, along a certain path. But I think, you know, going back to when I was 22, I think I was very focused on getting a certain job and then following a path to get where I wanted to be. And not saying that's the wrong model, but I think I would tell myself, don't be afraid to take more risk. So at 22, I was young, I was mobile, I didn't have a lot of expenses or responsibilities. So if that was take time or take other roles that potentially could lead to broader experience but didn't necessarily follow my projected path, do it. If there was something you could have done to take a role and work as an expat abroad, do that. So I think I would just challenge myself to think a little bit more outside the box and take some more risk. That is very insightful advice and something that I don't think it can be um, taught to you to take advice. I think you almost have to learn that as you go along, that it's okay to take some risks, be outside the box, and you'll find new opportunities that way. It's okay not to be on this sort of straight line path with your career or your life in general. Yeah, it's easy to look back now and say that, I guess, because, you know, but certainly, you know, there are things that, you know, I think there are roles or opportunities I could have looked at or just even, you know, somebody I worked for a number of years ago said that, Yasmin, you have to be willing to take a vow of poverty sometimes to get some really good and meaningful experience. And I don't think I appreciated that at the time just because my sole goal at 22, somebody with no money, was just to make money. But I think that that was, now that I think about it, is really, really true is, you know, don't worry about money. All of that, you know, will eventually work out. Just focus on the experience and your passion and what you want to do. And don't be afraid to take risks to get there. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you once again, Yasmin, for joining us on our podcast. And thanks to everyone listening. We hope you'll join us again for our next Women in Private Equity and Finance podcast. Thanks, folks. Thanks to you and the McGuire Woods team. I had an enjoyable time being here. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. 